Ladies and gentlemen, coming soon, a podcast you've all been waiting for. The Movie Podcast to End All Movie Podcasts. A podcast that discusses and critiques the best of the best and the worst of the worst movies playing at a theater near you. With a host whose opinions have been deemed as fact by your favorite fact checkers. And that's a fact. Without further ado, let me introduce you to the movie maestro, the tyrant of theater, the gumshoe of review, the man that makes theater employees and Hollywood execs shiver by his mere presence. Ladies and gentlemen, the judge, the jury, the sultan of cinema, Justin Hansen. Welcome to the Movie Wire. Welcome to this week's edition of the Movie Wire. I'm your host, Justin Henson, and welcome to the show. This is the first episode of season two, and we have a big movie release this week with four brand new reviews, three for theaters, and one for streaming. This week on the show, the horror retelling of our favorite pals over at the Hundred Acre Woods that are not hunting for honey in Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. Opposites attract, but families don't in the new Netflix comedy, You People. In 1987, a group of counselors accidentally unleash a decades-old evil at a summer camp in the horror comedy, She Came From the Woods. And finally, Marvel kicks off Phase 5 with the third installment of the Ant-Man films in Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania. Ready for my verdict? Let's get into it. Out of the windows to watch a roar and a burst of flames. The Movie Wire podcast. There it is. You just meet people like me. The Wire. And here we go. In 1987, a group of counselors accidentally unleash a decades-old evil on the last night of summer camp in the new comedy horror film, She Came from the Woods. Attention campers, this is the final call to convene the mess hall for the goodbye ceremony. Let's move! Let's move! Let's move! That means you, Tommy. What's my balls, dick face? Good afternoon, campers! Well, these might be our final moments together this summer at Briarbrook. The fun isn't over yet. Now we all know the story. 42 years ago, Nurse Agatha gets kicked out of Camp Briarbrook. This eerie calm takes over the forest. Now I know we've all been trying to bring this hag back for years. We prick our finger, hold up this guy, and scream her name. Agatha! Something fucking horrible has happened. If you can hear me, please meet in the mess hall. Do you think maybe the ritual thing might have caused Lauren? She's not real. That's the reason why She would lure the children from their bunks by night collecting their blood in jars that she hung from the trees. I'm telling you, we hunt the hag. All right, screw it. Let's go. Here. Let's try not to die tonight. It's... Hey man, don't just keep the car running. People are dead, you fucking idiot! Do you have the faintest idea what you've done? I gotta get the fucking picture! Ah! 
What does she want? She's lit! She Came from the Woods is one of those movies that you hope would work hard to intentionally be so campy, so bad, that it actually goes into guilty pleasure territory, or attempt to do something unique with its premise to add a sense of confidence in its filmmaking to make it a fresh idea. After watching the trailer to She Came from the Woods and walking into the theater, I was really hoping for a campy, fun, good time, with a film that didn't take itself too seriously. The movie was written by the original screenwriters of the 2017 short film that this was based on by the same name, the brothers Eric Bloomquist and Carson Bloomquist, with Eric Bloomquist in the director's seat. Now, these two have a challenge of stretching this basic idea from a 12-minute horror film to an hour and 40-minute movie. The Bloomquist brothers' original short was more targeted to the straightforward, scary story horror concept. Then we get the full-length movie that shoots for a which is an 80s horror comedy slasher film with a hint at the beginning it was going to be an 80s horror satire. And it delivers exactly what is advertised for at least the first 30 minutes. She Came From The Woods introduces our cast of counselors and kids as they all start to wrap up the summer, including activities like a final camp play, the camp owner's motivational goodbye speech, and of course, a bunch of teenagers getting ready to have a little party after the kids leave for the summer. Camp Briarbrook is run by the McAllister family, run by father and grandfather Gilbert McAllister, played by William Sadler, who just got done repraising his role as Death from the Bill & Ted franchise in Bill & Ted Face the Music. Alongside Gilbert to help run the camp is the help of his daughter Heather, played by Kara Bono from Stranger Things. And of course, we have Heather's sons who work at the camp that also play a stereotypical 80s horror characters. We have the playful, rebellious, overly confident in the black sheep of the family, Peter, played by Spencer List. We have the serious play by the rules character, Sean, played by Tyler Elliott Burke. The two brothers are a stereotypical but dumbed down yin and yang of the family. But what's a slasher film without the stereotypical sex craze? mullet sporting jerk. That's where we have Dylan played by the over-the-top but brilliantly played by Adam Wepler and our 80s standalone character that contrasts the others to give a reason to leave the group at some point and that's our openly gay character Ben played by the outstanding Dan Leahy who does a fantastic job in not going completely all in and over the top with his character. He keeps it completely subtle, likable and who you feel like he's just being himself and it is a refreshing performance to see in a movie like this. Benton comes across more likable than any of our other characters on screen, and I just wish he had more screen time here. Now, the premise here, without giving anything away, is that Camp Briarbrook had a camp nurse, Agatha, that would lure kids into the woods to conduct rituals. Agatha gets banished from the camp and dies. Each year, the counselors do a tradition, which is performing a ritual to attempt to bring her back. And this year, the ritual works so conveniently. One by one, and one predictable killing after another, Agatha is back for revenge. Now, the Bloomquist brothers were smart when it comes to how they wanted this movie to play out by attempting to rewrite the original short story to really match and engage with the audience in a full-length feature, knowing that if they went with the original 12-minute short, it might come across too cliche and just not fun. Knowingly, they knew they were going to run into another cliche of slasher films, and this is what they wanted to avoid to keep something special. 
The decision to make it a horror comedy was the right decision to make. But here's the thing. By watching the original short film and a bunch of their previous shorts, you can tell the Bloomquist brothers have a love for 80s and horror. And this is where we can visually see them struggle to change the tone of the film once we see Agatha start to kill. The first 30 or so minutes, the Bloomquist brothers get so much right. It's funny. It's not over the top. It's not an over the top 80s feel to attack nostalgia, but plays the setting as a serious. 80s setting and lets the characters project their stereotypes of the characters they play. But right when Agatha comes into play, the Bloomquist brothers have trouble of letting go of the 80s slasher nostalgia, and they just end up going into another predictable slasher flick. That feels like another movie we have seen a thousand times over with nothing new to add. This is where the filmmakers start to lose credibility with the audience. They lose the humor and the fun from the first 30 minutes of what they delivered to the viewer. Now, if the Bloomquist brothers wanted to make a slasher flick that paid tribute to their love of the 80s, put that passion in that work and give the viewer a consistent tone. Don't just tease us and pull the bait and switch on us halfway through the movie. I can almost picture the brothers throw their hands up in the middle of writing this screenplay and say, screw it. This is going to be another slasher flick, but they didn't want to go back and fix the beginning of the screenplay to make it transition. The only thing that keeps the middle afloat is our stereotypical character sex crazed Dylan and our likable Ben. As we get into the final act of the movie, the film starts to remember where it started and attempts to kick itself into a version of the first 30 minutes, but more with a ridiculous no-sense conclusion. But there is some humor here that does throw us back into the movie that really starts to tackle the farce of the situation. Even though not as strong, the ending still is much better than the middle. She Came to the Woods frustrated me just a little bit. I always feel a movie like this should shoot for being either really, really bad or really, really good, with little in the middle. That can sound a little far-fetched. Now, the reason I say this, we take a lot of satire movies, a lot of slasher movies. Let's take money from the studios aside, take out the pocketbooks, take out studio meddling, the things that would test our human creativity to each end of the spectrum. Filmmakers that have shot from the hip to just commit to an idea, a majority of the time has always been surprisingly good. The filmmakers here, you can strongly see they did not shoot from the hip. They overthought this concept, which is a shame because the movie started so good and so strong. Wrong. Now, when it comes to going all in on just the ridiculousness or the comedy or the absurdity of the satire, there are prime examples of this in movies that are just so odd that it works. But She Came From The Woods is a prime example of not keeping with an idea with confidence, steering off course and questioning what story you're telling. Even though the film had an unbalanced middle, it does get credit for the fact it will eventually become a good midnight movie. The film has its numerous flaws, but when it commits itself, it truly is something special. The biggest thing She Came From The Woods is successful in is the well-written characters that really drive this movie, and it kind of just stays with you. Now, at the end of the day, She Came From The Woods has its flaws, but asking myself after I left, would I see that again? The answer is yes. So with that said, I'm giving She Came From The Woods two and a half stars. Now, before we get into the rest of the show, make sure you check out my reviews on previous episodes for movies that are available to rent, buy, and stream now. Now available, a vacation resort for the rich on an island that punishes crimes with death, with an alternative, but only for those that can afford it in Infinity Pool, which received three stars. A romantic comedy where a couple arranges the meeting of their parents, but find out they all know each other way too well. In Maybe I 
Two, which received a cheap but elegant gift of two and a half stars. The story of the legendary artist Whitney Houston that tracked her journey to musical superstardom in I Wanna Dance With Somebody, which was out of tune with receiving one and a half stars. And finally, Gerard Butler plays a pilot that must save his crew and passengers after crashing into unknown territory in a plane, which crashed its way to two stars. You can find those reviews on my previous episodes, and just a reminder, if you haven't yet, make sure you hit follow or subscribe and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. And make sure you follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd at MovieWireShow. Now, it's that time of year again where we are having the Snohomish Film Festival coming up here in the Seattle area. You can now submit your film into the festival by going to www.filmfreeway.com backslash Snohomish Film Festival. It's going to be a great year and I cannot wait to see your movie. Now, I want to introduce a podcast that always puts me in a good mood and one I find myself quoting more than I think I should. It's an absolutely fantastic show that everybody needs to check out with their extremely relatable and entertaining topics. And that's super familiar with the Wilsons. Let's hear from the Wilsons now. The super familiar with the Wilsons podcast. You know that family whose house you hung out in when you were a kid? The house was a little loud and chaotic, but always fun and sometimes felt more home than home. Well, that's us. We're the Wilsons, and we welcome you into our podcast with silly chat, ridiculous games, and interviews with interesting people. Like a spin doctor. The super familiar with the Wilsons podcast. Welcome home. The days of Christopher Robin and Winnie the Pooh and friends come to a halt as Christopher Robin leaves the Hundred Acre Woods, leaving his woodland friends alone. Pooh and Piglet become feral and with a taste of blood, Winnie the Pooh and Piglet now have a new appetite and that isn't honey, but rather murder and rage in the new low-budget horror film Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. You know, you're the first person I've ever shown this place to. And why am I so special? Because soon, we'll be Christopher and Mary Robin. We should be close now. We're not going to find them. We will. Pooh, Piglet, Eeyore. We were friends for many years, and they're out there. Christopher, we need to leave. Now. I really need to find out what's happening here, okay? Did you see how to pull? We need to go! There's... The Laura's there. There's someone else outside. What was that? Why are you doing this, please? I would have never left that swear, I swear. Now production of this film became possible in 2022 after the original novel Winnie the Pooh from 1926 
became public domain in the U.S. But the catch is that most of us that are familiar with Pooh's adventures are mostly familiar with the Disney version growing up, which is protected from using that version from any other property. And there has been a lot of mixed reactions from the production of Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. Some horror fans welcomed it with open arms, some find it distasteful and disgusting, and some think it will just ruin their childhood. But let's zero in on this production for a second. The production became possible in 2022. The filmmakers couldn't use the likeliness of the Disney version. Now a film that started filming in 2022 with a very small budget, and from what was advertised on this screening website was in one hour and 40 minute runtime. And I have to say I'm not a professional filmmaker, but even I can see the writing on the wall. With the amount of money and time these filmmakers had to pull off a quality film, it just isn't there. So my curiosity was piqued on what kind of movie I was going to see with a limited budget and a limited pre-production time. Now when the final credits rolled on screen, I was a little taken back but not surprised. The movie actually only had a runtime of about 80 minutes. And that makes much more sense. Not to the terms that this was a great movie, not even a good movie, but it makes sense given the time frame that the movie wouldn't be an hour and 40 minutes. But in respect, I don't think anybody expected Shakespeare here, and to an extent expected just a cheesy, low-budget horror film. But what audiences are going to get from a movie like this is a movie that reaches well below even the lowest expectations, because the quality of this film is lackluster at best, and it will not fool anybody to know that this is a film that rushed at the potential at the opportunity to be the first one to capitalize on the characters becoming a public domain. And at times, the film can look okay, but you can definitely feel the rush of detail here, and the rush is forte. Blood and Honey was written and directed by Reese Frank Waterfield, who approaches this film along with his character direction as he has watched too many character-themed Pornhub videos and low-budget horror movies with his eyelids pinned wide open for a duration of 30 days. His characters approach each line as they're waiting for the UPS driver to deliver a big package in a porn video. Now, the film starts off with some really good potential, again, given its low budget and some clever artwork to narrate what happens in the Hundred Acre Woods after Christopher Robin's departure. After the beginning narrative introduction is done, we see Christopher Robin and his wife enter the Hundred Acre Woods, with Christopher explaining to his wife the tale of his animal friends in the woods, and as this scene continues, it again is pleasing to watch for the most part and is a well-shot scene, and is not necessarily well-written but engaging as an introduction. After the engaging intro, we get into the standard horror scenario territory where a group of friends travel to a cabin in the Hundred Acre Woods for a long-needed getaway. This is where the film becomes complete bollocks as and becomes very selfish and takes no time with our Christopher Robin to go into horror territory. This is where the sloppy writing and direction comes into visual and never really fully recovers. Blood and Honey is so eager to get into the look what I can do with these characters that nobody else has done before. It's almost like watching a five-year-old being told to wait five minutes to open Christmas presents. The only difference is that the only Christmas present the child gets is 20 pairs of socks. Now, from the trailers, we already know that Pooh and Piglet look extremely cheap and look like humans wearing Halloween masks from Spirit Halloween. The problem we have is that Waterfield didn't take this into consideration in his writing. He didn't have an idea of what kind of look he wanted Pooh to have. By this design, you can tell he was more concerned on taking advantage of the property versus anything else. Now, more recently over the holidays, I reviewed the low-budget 
horror knockoff of The Grinch, entitled The Mean One, which had an extremely low budget as well, but where I gave that movie credit is that it made do with what it had to surround itself around writing and effects that made it at least memorable and not take itself too seriously. It knew its opportunity and its faults, and it made its opportunities front and center to not hide it. It had elements to make it at least a fun, entertaining cheese fest with a group of friends. The mean one had elements to it to at least give it a shot to have at least a small cult following. Blood and Honey utilizes none of these elements and pokes no fun at the cheesiness of how it looks, let alone how it progresses to make no sense whatsoever. Ever. There is a shot in this movie after already built up frustration from the numerous opportunities that it has that defines how awful this writing is. Our cast is in a rented vacation house after realizing something is wrong, and our Pooh Bear and Piglet write a generic horror comment of Get Out in Blood on a Window. Why in the bloody hell would this be written on a window when the filmmakers want audiences to think that our Pooh and Piglet are thirsting for blood? Wouldn't they want them to stay? When they want them to not suspect anybody is outside their window, this movie is surrounded around cliche horror concepts from horror films past, including standing in a bright shiny light with a Jason Voorhees stance, a moment of peace before a loud sudden murder, a good looking girl in a vulnerable state that ignores loud noises, the list can go on. But the movie never has fun with these cliches. The movie has split second elements of the attempt at detail, but if you blink, you might miss it. There are some movements that Pooh does with his prosthetics that come across potentially creepy, but there are usually a half a second and you really have to be paying attention. The success of some of the movements in our second half of the movie are even more successful than the spoken words in the film, and Waterfield is too selfish in his writing and directing to even notice. Now, Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, I was looking forward to. I was in a good mood to see this film. I was in a mood to turn off my brain and just be entertained with mind-numbing entertainment. I knew what I was getting into, a low-budget slasher film, and at times I am a sucker for these types of movies. But this is below the fine line of crap. Those that are worried that this movie will ruin your childhood, rest assured, even if you see it, it will not ruin your childhood thoughts of Winnie the Pooh, but rather make you think about the greed of filmmakers trying to profit off of property as quickly as possible with little to no thought. Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey isn't edgy enough to gather a cult following, it isn't fun enough to have a couple of drinks and enjoy, and it isn't a complete pile of poo, but rather a big pile of complete and utter sh**. I'm giving Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, one star. Oh, bother. Ant-Man and the Wasp, along with Cassie, Hank, and Janet, find themselves sucked into the quantum realm, interacting with strange new creatures, and embarking on an adventure that pushes them beyond the limits of what they thought was possible, and a threat that will challenge the fate of the world in the first Marvel movie of Phase 5 in Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania. I used to ask myself a lot of questions. Scott, you're at ex-con. How are you an Avenger? That doesn't make sense. But everywhere I go, people tell me the same thing. Thank you, Spider-Man. People still need help, Dad. That's why we made this. It's like a satellite for deep space, but quanta. Wait, wait a minute. You're sending a signal down to the quantum realm. Turn it off. Now!
beneath ours. What are you so afraid of? There's something I never told you. This place. It isn't what you think. you home and give you more time if you help me so what's it gonna be Now, it's hard to review individual Marvel movies for me without taking into consideration of where the movies are going to go in its phases. I think there is a good majority of voices out there that considers Phase 4 of Marvel's Cinematic Universe just a meh if you take out the TV series aspect. Phase 4 of Marvel included 7 movies and 8 TV series, and I was not a fan of Marvel's Phase 4, with the only exception being Shang-Chi, Spider-Man, No Way Home, and Black Panther Wakanda Forever. This was a completely odd phase for Marvel trying to balance its universe from TV to movies, and I think they are having a little trouble trying to find a proper balance, hook, and tie-in to really keep the audience engaged. Each movie after following Phase 4, I kept wondering where the filmmakers were going to take this, and again, without judgment, it's the final result that matters. And I get we're getting introductions to a brand new set of characters, but here's the thing. With Phase 4, there are introductions to characters that I can really care less about. And the characters that we are familiar with that we got movies from, such as the more recent Thor, were lackluster at best. And now comes Ant-Man that is going to join the same club. With Phase 4, there is nothing really of true interest to really drive my motivation to even care where these characters are going to go. Or how they're going to cross paths to actually have a decent chemistry that doesn't seem forced. With all the movies in Phase 4, with the exception of Spider-Man, there is very little in the other movies that really encourage me to really care to see them in another movie or in another crossover. Marvel's going to have to get really strategic here on what's going to happen next. So I will still follow along as most of us will to see where our Marvel filmmakers will lead us. And here we are beginning Phase 5 with Ant-Man and the Wasp and Quantumania kicking us off. Now the previous two Ant-Man's films I actually really enjoyed. I felt them as a mental break between really story-heavy Marvel films. It added a subtle heart and humor to the phases these movies appeared in, but at the same time still stayed relevant to its respected placement among the other Marvel films. Marvel was smart in the utilization of its Ant-Man character Scott Lang, played by Paul Rudd, not only for his standalone movies, but also in his numerous cameos. But now we have Ant-Man and the Wasp and Quantumania that loses its heart of what was so special about the first couple. It takes the heart and humility out of our hero element and takes us to an environment with a lot to throw at the audience with little to no buildup. Ant-Man and the Wasp and Quantumania brings back our original heroes and scientists, Paul Rudd as Ant-Man and Avageline Lilly as Wasp, Michael Douglas as Hank Fem, Michelle Pfeiffer as Janet with Catherine Newton taking the place of Abby 
writer Fortston as Scott's daughter Cassie. And bringing back the director from the previous two Ant-Man films and 2000's Bring It On is director Peyton Reed. Now, reviewing this movie as an individual standalone, Quantum Media wastes no time to jump right into the plot, knowing it has a lot to cover, especially with a lot of characters to give equal screen time to to have it make sense, along with an entire universe to discover. This is where the movie's biggest flaws come to the surface. Quantum Media does give a heavy focus on Michelle Pfeiffer's character Janet, who has spent 30 years in the quantum realm, and this makes sense to me. She has one of the biggest parts of the film that kind of overshadows Ant-Man and even the Wasp. Given the amount of characters and content this Marvel edition has to cover, it becomes a little too heavy at times, with a little too much focus on Janet explaining the quantum realm versus letting the audience explore the realm for themselves, inviting us in with a sense of awe and wonder to this new universe that we have only heard of and barely seen. And when we are finally in this world, its attention to detail feels really artificial and generic, especially when we are introduced to our villainous characters, more specifically the Modoc character, who was so poorly, poorly designed and it was almost painful to watch. It was so generic and sloppy. There was no creativity put into this character and it has so much potential. It's hard to take it seriously when our filmmakers just create a placement for our stellar cast to carry each scene. Marvel completely relies on the dialogue from Jimmy Kimmel Live writer Jeff Loveness, and it does show a weakness in the writing going from three writers from the first two films down to one. And Loveness doesn't do a horrible job here, but he tends to over-focus on particular ideas of dialogue that can be redundant and repetitive at times, and it lacks anything memorable from our two main characters characters that are listed in the title, Ant-Man and the Wasp. But what director Peyton Reed and the writing of Loveness do is create a very engaging dynamic between the cast. The chemistry is there between our cast members with some intimate camera shots, but this is not due to the dialogue but our talented seasoned cast. They are a pleasure to watch interact on screen as one would expect from Michael Douglas and Michelle Pfeiffer to do. The film does act as a complete popcorn flick and it is entertaining to watch, but as we lead into the climax of the film, we almost get a copycat fight scene and speech as we got from Steven Spielberg's 2018 Ready Player One. And there is a sense of enjoyment to the climax and gives a bit of excitement. And the second half is entertaining and engaging to watch, but you can't help the feeling that we've seen this all before. Now, when it comes to our main villain, Kang the Conqueror, played by Jonathan Majors, this character had me thinking well after the movie was over, and I will leave it at that. But I will say that given the information towards the end of the film, the dialogue was a complete miss here. And you can see the biggest weakness in love writing. Majors gives an okay performance, but the dialogue does not support it. To really give a curiosity about him, to give us some individual screen time to truly understand him, to have the audience build an opinion of him, to show a motivation for his actions. He is not given the proper opportunity to give a motivation, explanation, or thought-provoking statement of why he is the way he is. We don't give any intent to take him as an actual threat other than him being dressed up like a villain, which the costume to me was a little ridiculous and amateurish. We usually get some sort of intent, motivation, or timeline of why the villain is the way he is in most Marvel films. I just wish Majors had something better to work with because you can see the potential in Majors' performance and the range he kind of attempts to do, but it's held back by the very basic amateurish writing. Now, this isn't my least favorite Marvel film, but it is my least favorite Ant-Man film. I do feel it's a missed opportunity when it comes to kicking off the new phase of the Marvel Cinematic Universe when it comes to its villain, the Quantumverse, and really move these characters along. 
long, but I will say that it is entertaining as fast-paced, the characters' chemistry keep us engaged, and even though poorly executed on the imagination of the quantum realm, the scenery changes enough keeps us looking to the screen for something new. Ant-Man and the Wasp and Quantumania is admittedly a fun time at the movies, and it's one that I would actually watch again, when I'm in one of those moods to just turn my brain off and enjoy. If you're comparing it to the standard of Marvel films from the past, the answer is no, it is not going to hold up. The writing from Loveness holds this movie back from its true potential and the lack of imagination of its environment. Quantumania is held up by a stellar cast and the wonderment of Marvel to keep the audience guessing what's next. Will you walk out of Ant-Man and the Wasp and Quantumania disappointed? The answer is yes for a lot of Marvel fans. Those looking for a popcorn flick just to kind of turn your brain off, compared to the first two Ant-Man films, it doesn't hold a candle, but it does hold to the tradition that it's not story heavy, but rather an entertaining romp. I'm giving Ant-Man and the Wasp and Quantumania two and a half stars. It gets so hard to keep track and even have time to read all the trending topics on the web. Now there's a new app to help with all of those problems. Newsly is an audio app for iOS and Android. It picks up web articles about the most trending topics on the web at any given moment and reads them to you in a natural human voice. For the first time in the history of the internet, the entire web becomes listenable. Browse articles from topics you choose and start playing. You can follow any topic as specific as you like from sports, science, to Bitcoin. You can even follow Kardashian. It will find you the latest articles and read them to you out loud. And guess what? They have podcasts as well. Explore trending podcasts from over 50 countries. The Movie Wire is now a featured podcast on the Newsly app. Download and use Newsly for free now. The link will be in the description of this episode. You can also use one of my promo codes that you will find in the description as well to get you a one month free premium subscription. Stop scrolling, start listening, download Newsly today. A new couple and their families find themselves examining modern love and family dynamics among clashing cultures, social expectations, and generational differences in the new Netflix original, You People. What's going on? Tell me about life. How are you? This is your white granddaddy come back to haunt me. What? Now this is my fault? <clears throat> so you want to marry my daughter? Yes. Yes, I do. Well, Ezra, you could try. Can you honestly say that your family's excited to have my black ass in the picture? <laughs> oh my gosh, you are so beautiful. I think the police okay. are fucked up towards black people. I like your braids. Thank you. Exhibit head braids. What's the difference between me and you? We've built a pretty awesome life together. We just need to protect it. What's the difference between me? Oh, so you're all Muslim. Very much so. I love it. This kufi that I'm wearing was actually a gift from the Honorable Louis Farrakhan. Mm. Are you familiar with the minister's work? Well, I'm familiar with what he said about the Jews. You know what, let's I have dinner. What's the difference between me and you? You talk a good one, but you don't do what you're supposed to do. Your family, my family. I don't know how this is going to work. Well, we were technically OG slaves. Are you trying to compare the Holocaust to slavery? We passed the potatoes. Our people came here with nothing like everybody else. It's a very uncomfortable conversation. Are you kidding me? Did we ever figure out what happened with the potatoes Are you kidding the ETA on those? What's the difference between me and you? Hey, uh, what's up with white cuz? Am I white cuz? Well, I'm not. I'm white cuz for sure. 
Now, you people is a copy of a copy where you take an idea, copy it, and then you make a copy of that idea, and it's even worse than the original. The original idea being, of course, look who's coming to dinner. Then the copy would be 2005's Guess Who, starring Bernie Mac. And now we have the copy of the copy, you people starring Eddie Murphy, Jonah Hill, and Lauren London. Now, before I just jump right into it, I do have to give you people a little bit of credit for addressing so many topics all at once. And this is one of those movies that's very difficult to have a proper balancing act with all the social and cultural differences this movie addresses. But the problem we have with you people is that it truly never commits itself to the messaging. It's a very sloppy formula. We talk about cultural differences, cue the situational joke. We talk about racism, cue the conversational joke. It treats subject matter as a joke that's queuing up for a punchline instead of taking its time to explore the messaging and give a quality punchline. It rushes these topics as if it cannot wait to tell you a joke. You People is written by Jonah Hill, who also stars in the film, and Kenya Barris, who wrote The Coming to America 2, 2022's Cheaper by the Dozen, and wrote and created the TV show A Blackish. Now, there is a scene in this film that can sum up what you would be in store for if you watch You People, which we take our couple Ezra, played by Jonah Hill, and Amira, played by Lauren London. They have their parents finally meet for dinner, after our couple have been dating a while. As we have our couple and their parents sit at the table, you can almost give a play-by-play and predictability on what's going to happen. Both sides of the table of the parents get into a passive-aggressive argument about slavery versus the Holocaust. And to even attempt to take these two topics and turn it into a comedic event is a challenge by itself. And then we have Jonah Hill's character Ezra that always seems to be wanting to attempt to play a recycled, nervous Ben Stiller from Meet the Parents. The table is set up for a bit of physical humor after the uncomfortable conversation, and it is so recycled, predictable, and forced. Just the mere transition between the conversation and the physical humor is so artificial it is painful to watch. You People comes across as overconfident with its subject matter but really doesn't know what to do with it. Its dialogue is as effective to delivering its message as running into a crowded pool and yelling fire. Besides our problematic dialogue, the main problem of this movie is Ezra. His character is written so unlikable the movie wants you to root for the couple's success but there is no way I'm going to root for this guy. Here is a guy that quits a stable job, lies, and literally has his drug dealer give him a bag of coke in front of his soon-to-be father-in-law. The film misses the point of rooting for this couple to want to succeed and all be at peace. I was rooting for Eddie Murphy to ruin this relationship, to get this guy away from his daughter. But the film focuses too little on the reasoning of why this inappropriate behavior is happening from Ezra, because the film wants to keep the messaging of race and cultural differences as a focal point to be a reason to keep these two apart. Because God forbid a father sees his future son-in-law get handed a bag of coke and is treated like it's not a big deal because the filmmakers didn't want it to be treated as a reason why. And it makes these situational moments so pointless, it makes it so it's pointless to be in the film and it ruins the messaging and it ruins the pacing and tone. Why Hill and Barris would even write a character like this if they wanted to have a comedy about cultural differences, social expectations, and generational differences, why would they give this character so many things to dislike? This is beyond me. But I will give Eddie Murphy credit. He does a fantastic job playing the protective father, and he isn't over the top in his performance. But by the time he reaches the climax, there's more context to root for Murphy versus Hill when it comes to the narrative of the movie. The character balance is so way out of whack that we don't have any emotion towards these characters, but rather an anger of frustration of what we are supposed to feel for these characters. Murphy does his best, but the material is so misguided and poorly written, it gives Murphy very little to work with. I can almost feel Murphy's frustration 
frustration of being constrained with the dialogue, which is a shame not only for Murphy, but the movie is full of top-notch talent here. From Julia Louise Dreyfus, Nia Long, David Duchovny, and Rhea Perlman, you people never really takes advantage of the talent it has on cast, nor does it spend a lot of time. It just treats it as a limited-line cameo. It's a complete waste of talent. I can understand a challenge to making a film with such hot topics in our society today, but if you're going to make a film like this, you have to not only be dedicated to your vision and message, but to the comedy as well. Most of the situations can give us a slight chuckle, some are just so painfully unfunny it's hard to watch, and right when we see a scene with good potential, the film holds back from trying to do something truly funny. Watching You People is a failed recipe of hot topics that are important in our society today, and Hill and Barris know this. The execution comes across lazy, overconfident, and completely unfunny with absolutely no care of heart. You People is one of those movies that has a great cast of talent but is wasted on a recycled premise to get its messaging across, a completely sloppy, misguided script with poorly written characters that pulls its audience back and forth from confusion of what the film was set out to do. I can appreciate the integrity of You People's idea, but without the substance of its messaging, it becomes one of those things that we just kind of say, I guess it's the thought that counts. I'm giving you people one and a half stars. And that's a cut on this week's edition of The Movie Wire. I want to thank you for listening and thank you for your support. You can also show support by following me on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd at Movie Wire Show. Until next week, do me a favor. Make sure you stay for after the credits to show respect to those that put their blood, sweat, and tears into making a feature film. And make sure you support your local movie theaters. Verdict has been made on this episode of The Movie Wire by your host, Justin Hansen. He thanks you for listening to the show. You can follow Justin on Instagram and Twitter at Movie Wire Show or visit his website, www.themoviewire.com. Oh, and don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I'm sure he'd love to hear from you. Until next time, we will see you at the movies. Thank you for bringing me to the movies.